This is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Thursday morning, Mike McNamara for a Thursday edition of All Marine Radio, right here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network. And if you followed this program for a while, uh, you're familiar with a friend of mine uh, by the name of Kim Holmes. He would describe himself as my hetero life partner. Uh, he came on every Friday and did a cooking segment here and uh, it became very popular. And Kim passed away on Monday. I think it was Monday. So, um, yeah, so sad week for his friends and family and for me and my family. Uh, but you know what? I, I always talk about, you know, one of the things I've learned in life with all the different things I've been through is how to celebrate somebody's life. And let me tell you, um, <laughs> Kim was a good time. He was a great time. Uncle Mountain, as he was known to some, um, he was only about having a good time. And, uh, you know, he uh, he's Colleen's godfather. And, uh, and don't tell anybody, but he's not even Catholic. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, both my sons worked for him as dishwashers, their first jobs in life. And, uh, and, you know, just a great friend to me and, you know, my entire family. And so, uh, but again, uh, you know, in life, we should all be so lucky as to, as to live on our own terms, to do it our way and to cheat death as often as possible. And Kim did, trust me. I don't know how many stents he had in him. He had diabetes. He had a pacemaker. And, you know, we used to joke that when COVID hit, like, you know, the Grim Reaper screaming your name, you know, right? You know, with all the different things you have. Um, but he was just, uh, he's just a great guy, great friend. Um, and I met him, um, 
when I started doing radio, the guy whose job I actually took, who left to go to a different market, he had Kim on to do something. And it's something relative to cooking. And, um, and I'm, so I meet Kim and, uh, you know, and when I was leaving, when the guy left, he said, you know, you should continue to have him on. And I said, yeah, you know, and so Kim came on and, and we hit it off better than he hit it off with the other guy. And I said, why don't you come on every Friday, man? And we'll talk food and whatever bullshit we want to talk about. And we would. Um, and we used to have a group. We used to have fun. Um, right? We'd talk food. We'd give advice on, a, on what? On morals and manners. It was called Advice Divas we did. Oh, my God. It was hilarious. And uh, so for... When I wasn't in Iraq and Afghanistan for the better part of ten years, we did it on a on a, on a radio station every Friday, and some of the stuff's really funny. So on Saturday, uh, I will play a bunch of those programs uh, as a little bit of a tribute to my friend Kim. But you know, again, like I say, um, certainly sad week. But you know what? Uh, more than anything else, celebrating that. You know, that I met him and my, our lives crossed paths. Um, and he was such a great friend. He's such great um, influence on, on my kids and, and my ex-wife, you know, is, is, you know and, and then all the different people he touched. And, he, and let me tell you, he'd give you the shirt off his back. Give you the shirt off his back. You're raising money, he wants to be involved in it. Going to have a benefit dinner, have it at my place. And just a just fantastic guy. So, um, but we celebrate the life of my friend Kim Holmes today. So, Mike Marletto is going to join us here in a few minutes. Uh, Mike, um, uh, I met him. I knew him by reputation before I met him, and he sent me an email once telling me that he was he used to you know started listening to the podcast, and he really enjoyed it. And uh, in spite of the fact that he's a Dodger fan, we're friends, and uh, lives about half the year, or we'll, we'll find out exactly what percentage in Australia. But we'll get his Mike's thoughts on. Uh, first of all, he's, and he's an artillery guy. He's Mike was the fires guy that planned all the fires uh, for the march up uh, for, for the 1st Marine Division, so worked for Joe Mattis, and uh, had a great career as an artilleryman. So we'll get his thoughts on Ukraine. Uh, we'll get his thoughts on the Western Pacific where he spends much of his time and the Australian perspective of that. And then uh, and then we'll talk about force design and get his thoughts on that because uh, Mike knows most of the principles involved. So uh, good morning to you on this Thursday. The United States Marine Corps Band uh, makes this morning official. Good morning to you.
And this is dedicated to my friend Kim, who uh, who brought a lot of joy into a lot of people's lives. And I, you know, we should all be so fortunate as to live a long life uh, the way we want to live it, with as much fun as my friend Kim had. Uh, so uh, dedicated to Kim Holmes, my hetero life partner. <laughs> betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. All right, we will check the weather here. On a Thursday. Currently in Quantico, cloudy at 66, so it warmed up on the East Coast. Down the coast at uh, Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point, it is cloudy at 70. At the Combat Center at 29 Palms, sunny at 60. Pendleton, clouds at 57. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy and 69. Okinawa, dark cloudy and 70. And in Darwin, on the northern coast of Australia, it is clear, 
dark in 82 in Kiev. That would be in Ukraine. It is cloudy at 56. Currently at the home of All Marine Radio. It is mostly cloudy and 58 degrees today. Looking for a high of 64. You know, but I would tell you this. It's going to be 70 today. Tomorrow, 66. Saturday, 65. Sunday, 63. So um, that is a look at your weather. And uh, let me get Mike Marletto on the hook here. And... uh, Skype song. Join, joining me now through the wonders of Skype is Mike Marletto, Colonel, United States Marine Corps, artillery type. Mike, how are you? Well, Mac, I'm doing great. Uh, unfortunately, I, I guess I'm a little down after hearing your news about uh, Kim Holmes. So, uh, Sorry to hear that. Uh, probably like a lot of your listeners, I I felt like I knew Kim through all the times he was on All Marine Radio, and I was hoping uh, someday I might be able to meet him in person. But uh, great tribute to a, a superb uh, individual. So um, condolences to uh, you, to all his friends and family. Yeah. Yeah. No, let me tell you, he was a fun guy, man. I he. <laughs> He and I had a good time, whether we were doing this or, you know, raising money for somebody or just having dinner at his restaurant or and watch my kids wash dishes and things like that. So, um, no, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. He, no, just a, and again, I the one thing that, and I think you, you can echo this uh, based on our shared experiences, when you're around death a lot, um, you, you honestly have to learn how to celebrate life because if all you do is is do the grief thing um it's too shitty and you you really do how to learn and so you know I, I told my kids you know hey we should all be so lucky to live the way kim lived on your own terms among the people you love um doing what you dream about doing and have the reality be better than the dream and uh and that's what you got to do in life and and we need to celebrate his life and the fact that we got to know him we got to be around him and we got to share a piece of that. And uh, so, I mean, it's, again, from uh, our life experience, uh, you know, what you really do have to focus on. And so I, that's what I try to live. Well, exactly. So. The um, Let's, uh, I want to go, you ended your career. You're the CEO of 11th Marines. You're General Mattis's fires guy. I don't know that that's a technical term. Um, during the march up, yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, next, I was the uh, and at a technical term, the technical term. I was not only the CEO of Eleventh Marines, I was dual hatted as the fire support coordinator for the First Marine Division. Got it. All right. So um, you then, after that, you become what chief of staff of the division, or the MEF. After that, I became I moved up to the MEF and I became the MEF 
company. So I was the G3 and one MIF for two years, including um, one year in uh, MNF West forward in Iraq. Uh, same time you were there, 2006 to 2000, early 2007. Got it, got it. And, and, and then you retire when? And then I came back and spent my last year at uh, Marine Corps Base Pendleton uh, working on the base master plan and retired in summer of 2008. Got it. Got it. All right. Um, so everyone knows Mike Marletto. Okay. And as I said, I knew Mike Marletto by uh, reputation before I actually, you know, he sent me an email one day telling me he listened to All Marine Radio and he enjoyed it. And I thought, holy shit, man, I've heard about this guy. And so that's, that's how Mike and I meet. Um, you, uh, you spend, you know, part of the year in Australia. Tell everybody about that. So as we begin to talk about the Western Pacific, they can understand you've got a little bit of, of a sense of it as, as you live out there. Well, actually, I guess it's more um, correct right now to say I've spent years in Australia because I left the United States on in March on, of 2020 uh, with a plan to be in Australia for a couple months and then come back. And, of course, we know that's when the pandemic really hit hard. So the week after I got to Australia is when they, you know, slammed shut all international travel. So as an American citizen and an Australian resident, I always had the um, opportunity to come back to the United States. But at that time, they weren't even they were not allowing even Australian residents to come back to Australia. There was a tight uh, cap. So you know, waited out until they opened up international travel. And like a lot of politicians, that kind of got teased along. And finally, when Australia got above 90 percent um, fully vaccinated for adults in uh, December of 20, this last year, 2021, they opened up international travel again. And so I uh, flew back in uh, the middle of uh, March. So I actually spent over the, la the last two years down down in Australia. So uh, I'm much more uh, in tune with uh, Australian politics right now than probably U.S., <laughs> although I do obviously keep up with what's going on in the U.S. and the world. Um, give us a perspective of the Western Pacific. Uh, we're fortunate enough to have Grant Newsham that comes on. And, you know, Grant's really educated me um, and uh, and a lot of people about the reality of, of you know, our quote-unquote pacing threat, China, uh, give us the Australian perspective, because the Australians have been the most confrontational relative to China uh, by far in the Western Pacific. Exactly. Obviously, you know, Australia is, you know, uh, much closer to uh, China in proximity than the U.S. Also, China is one of Australia's biggest uh, trade, trading partners. So the, Austra uh, the Australians uh, are very concerned about what China is doing, not only in the South China Sea, but more importantly, getting a lot closer to home with some of the moves that the Chinese have made. I know you and Grant talked about the recent uh, moves by the Solomons and their moves in uh, to get into Kiribati, only known as the Gilbert Islands. Um, but one other piece that you haven't really talked about is 
the Chinese have also been working with Papua New Guinea to establish a, as they call them, a fishing facility on the southern coast of Papua New Guinea in the vicinity of the Torres, Torres Straits. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that, there's a very narrow passage that on uh, to them from the nor north of Australia that separates Australia from New Guinea. Uh, it's uh, about 90 kilometers wide, but when you look at the av actual navigational waters, it's very, very narrow. At, uh, closest point, uh, New Guinea and Australia are only four kilometers apart. So it's very narrow, very shallow. I had the opportunity to transit the Torres Straits coming back from Iraq with uh, Amphibious Task Force West in uh, 2003. And when we went through, we went through in a column of uh, five ships, two big amphibs, uh, two big decks, two uh, LSDs and the LPD. So, you know, essentially you've got the Chinese put positioning themselves to be able to influence the Torres Straits, which means to get to Darwin, you would have to sail all the way around the Australian continent to get there if the Torres Straits are shut down. So essentially what I see is it, we all probably remember those World War II maps of, you know, the line they would draw were how far the Japan extended into the Pacific. Yes. Uh, the, you know, the Chinese are doing the same thing, except they're doing it economically and, uh, uh you know, gaining a lot of leverage with for a very small expenditures. And again, Grant's talked about that uh, on numerous occasions. So the, you know, Australians are very concerned about that. I mean, the Australians just have uh, signed a bill that's going to increase their military by uh, 20,000, which doesn't sound like a lot of people for us. But considering the Australian military right now sits at about 60,000 uh, individuals, I mean, that's a you know, a one-third increase of the uh, force. So that's a significant increase. Obviously, they've signed uh, agreements to uh, share nuclear submarine technology, and all of these things have uh, pissed off the Chinese. The Chinese are retaliated by cutting uh, coal imports out of Australia. Coal is Australia's number one export. They've put high tariffs on the Things like Australian meat, Australian wines, things that China is their l largest trading partner. And they've also threatened to cut off, you know, sending Chinese uh, students to uh, Australia to go to university, which, again, tends to be a source of uh, income for and helps support a lot of uh, the Australian universities. So the Chinese have have held no qualms about playing tough with the uh Australians, And by the same token, when the Australians signed that agreement for nuclear submarines, you had the uh, Chinese ambassador saying, well, guess what? You know, alluding to the fact that if you have nuclear submarines, we don't care if they're carrying conventional weapons, you're a nuclear target for us. So, I mean, the Chinese play hardcore. And to the Australians' credit, the Australians have held the line and played hardcore right back at them. So... It's uh, been interesting to watch. It's kind of like the, you know, the mouse that roared. Right. You know, and uh, so Australia has is you know leading the charge out there in the Pacific about, you know, standing tough at least in the south south uh, 
Southwest Pacific. Uh, Mike, give us some sense of, so what are they looking for from the United States? Well, obviously they've, they're looking to modernize their air force. They've increased uh, their, their buy of, you know, they've, they're replacing all their F-18s with uh, joint strike fighters, looking for more precision uh, weaponry from us. Some of the same things that uh, the Marine Corps talked about, some long range anti-ship, you know, uh, missile capabilities. Uh, they've increased their amphibious capability. In the last several years, they bought two large deck uh, amphibs uh, from Spain. And so those are now operational and they've dedicated one of their brigades in the Australian uh, army to uh, being an amphibious brigade. So they've done, you know, capabilities to respond around the uh, Pacific. When you had the recent uh, volcano erupt uh, in Tonga, you know, while the United States, I, I lamented the fact that here's the United States amphibs, you know, doing photo ops with uh, for the Navy off in the South China Sea. It was the Australians who responded by sending their one of their big deck amphibs up to Tonga, loaded with relief supplies, with the Australian kangaroo uh, prominently painted on the side of all the pallets. And so they've been very active in, in getting out. When the Solomons had problems um, a few months ago, it was the Australians again who responded, sent several hundred troops from their garrison in Townsville, where I live, and got sent up to uh, provide security. So they've been very active in the, uh, in the region. The other thing that's kind of flown behind the radar is they've also worked with uh, New Guinea and the United States to reactivate uh, and get access to Manus, which is a harbor in the Admiralty Islands just north of uh, Papua New Guinea. It was, a, it was a significant base in the in World War II. And so the Australians, along with the United States, are looking at developing, uh, you know, some basing agreements that would allow them to operate out of Manus, which then puts them on the north side of Papua New Guinea and more open access into the Southwest Pacific. What do you see as the the number one issue out there? This is Mike Marletto's opinion. Number one issue out there is? Well, from a security standpoint, their number one issue is, you know, China's increasing influence uh, and aggressive uh, stance throughout the Pacific. That's not Mike Marletto. I think that that would be uh, the Australian government would, uh, you know, articulate that. What would you say it is? Well, <laughs> I would agree. I would I would agree. I think they've got the got it called right. And, you know, they are taking steps to uh, increase their own security. But the bottom line is Australia has realized since World War Two that, you know, they've got to operate under the umbrella of the United States, that they're simply not big enough to uh, go it alone. So they've got to operate as part of a, you know, coalition and, you know, kind of follow the lead of the U.S. and depend on the U.S. to uh, provide the big umbrella, if you will. Are we are, are, are we doing enough? I mean, I, I've said ad nauseum. I'm, people, I'm sure, get 
sick of me saying it, but I, for the life of me, I cannot understand why there's no economic overture. You know, if you don't like Trans-Pacific Partnership, I got it. What is something else that, that try, attempts to bring Vietnam, uh, certainly the Philippines, and whoever else, you know, uh, into the closer to the orbit of the G7 and the United States? Um, I, I don't understand that. I don't understand it today. Um, if you were king for a day, what would you point your figure at and say, do this? Well, again, I would say the first thing is we've got to develop a comprehensive strategy, a national security strategy for the um, Pacific. And I believe that I've heard that that's in the works and that'll be interesting to see what that addresses. But certainly we've got to ele- uh, uh, leverage all of the elements of national power. Right. Again, I've heard you discuss this. And when we talk about the economic element, to influence a lot of places in the Pacific, it's really peanuts to make that kind of investment. And uh, and by the same token, the Chinese have made some huge strides by with some not only uh, minimal investments, but sometimes even the uh, promise that they might even be considering an investment. I'm going to give you a little vignette here, Mac, that really shows how the you know Chinese are able to you know, get things done for little to no cost. The uh, Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas Islands is um, a U.S. Commonwealth, has been since the 1980s. And on the island of Tinian, which we all know from World War II, just right just off the coast of Saipan, two-thirds of that island has been set aside for military training uh, since 1983 when we signed that uh, covenant. The people on Tinian have been looking forward to some kind of base development, you know, ever since we signed that covenant. They had, you know, grandiose thoughts that there would be large U.S. forces stationed there and that they would benefit you know, economically from from that. Um, the U.S. has been trying to develop some training there and enhance uh, the, the training, do more li- do live fire training on that the island and more heavy weapons training. And to uh, counter that, the Chinese, with literally very small to no investment, have made promises of economic development on the southern third of the island, that they would develop resorts down there that would bring in tourism. And oh, by the way, they would, you know, have shopping malls that would be available to the you know, citizens of Tinian that they could uh, come in. So when you look at it from the Tinian's uh, aspect, they say, well, here the U.S. is offering us as they talk about it, they're offering us jobs to cut the lawn and empty the shitters. You know, the Chinese are offering us the, you know, this influx of uh, tourism uh, and facilities that's going to raise our standard of living. And so even though none of that has come to pass, it's put a, you know, really helped put the uh, advancement of U.S. military training there into a stalemate. So that's how crafty the Chinese are, even operating in our in our own backyard, in, our, in a place that we, uh, you know, is a commonwealth of the U.S. So these guys are very crafty. They know how to get things done with minimal investments that they've shown in the, the Solomons and Kiribati. Uh, 
and we we need a comprehensive strategy to counter that and it's a it's really a low cost strategy it's uh, most of these places are are underdeveloped and for literally peanuts we could uh, keep them in our camp and allow us to maintain access what um all right let me switch gears with you i want to talk to um you've been watching like the rest of us uh russia versus ukraine uh you're a fires guy um uh, give us your thoughts on what you've seen what stands out to you well the first thing that kind of stands out to me mac is the reporting because once again i hearken back to our time in iraq in 2006 uh, as you may recall, in March and April of 2006, we had a pretty heavy kinetic fight going on in Ramadi. Every night we were dropping ordnance. We were, mm-hmm. you know, having uh, direct fire engagements. And none of that was getting reported because there were no reporters out in El Ambar. They were all sitting back in Baghdad in the green zone. And, and then so they and I, then they went down to Najaf, right? Because Sadr right. was doing his thing down there, and we're looking around, going, "No, that was 2004." I'm sorry. So when I look at the reporting in in the Ukraine, I, I have to scratch my head because we see very little reporting from the front lines. You know, most of the reporting is coming out of Kiev, Lviv, and uh, I haven't seen any embedded reporting. You know, every once in a while they'll link some uh, video that shows. Uh, you know, some kind of attack on a Russian formation. There was one that looked like an artillery attack on a bunch of Russian tanks that had absolutely no dispersion. So what strikes me is that one, I I don't know what I don't know because, you know, I don't have access to any other information than what we all see on open source uh, reporting. What strikes me, though, is as I hear and see these pictures of the you know, the Russians stacked up outside of uh, Kiev. It really makes me wonder what capabilities, if any, the Ukrainians have to attack that large static target. Anyone with any kind of uh, capability for deep attack, certainly uh, U.S. forces would, would have just ravaged those guys along those uh, roads stacked up like that. So it makes me wonder what's the Ukrainians' ability to uh, strike. The Russians, I mean, it's been a head-scratcher to me because uh, on one hand, their use of artillery does not surprise me because going back through Russian history and also their days as the Soviets, they always put an emphasis on artillery support as their primary arm and really their arm of decision in the Russian army. So the fact that they're using artillery this heavily doesn't surprise me. But once again, I have to wonder about the training and their ability to really effectively use it because of their seemingly indiscriminate uh, targeting and their inability in some cases to to hit um, high value targets. So those are some of the things that I scratch, scratch my head about. You're not, you're not surprised though that this is this is their koa because this is the koa right with with you know you just talked about the way the Russians have historically used um, um, artillery as the arm of decision you're not you're, you're certainly not surprised you know by the fact that that is in fact happening right no I'm not surprised by that at all 
I guess what I would be surprised, you know, they always followed that up, of course, with, uh, you know, closing with maneuver right. uh, forces. Right. But I so I would be surprised if, you know, they're trying to, if you will, bomb the uh, and shell the Ukrainians into submission, because I think one thing modern warfare has shown us going back to World War One, World War Two, um, you know, civilian populations are a lot more resilient than I think military leaders uh, give them credit for. Look at the Brits uh, surviving the Blitz from the in 1940 from the Germans. Look at Germany's, you know, and the German uh, resistance was not broken by the, you know, devastation that the uh, U.S. And, and British strategic bombing effort took. Uh, we we leveled Japan's cities and. You know, the Japanese weren't giving up uh, when uh, we did that in World War II. So time and time again, civilian uh, populaces have shown that they're, I won't say immune, but they're much more resilient and difficult to uh, break than I think a lot of military leaders may, may believe. Anything particularly catch your eye relative to just, as you talked about, I mean, it's very tough to, I mean, if you look for trends in the news, I mean, the headlines that are dominating the news today are, you, you know, uh, this is from the Wall Street Journal reporting, you know, pretty high quality. Ukrainian troops push forward as Russian forces regroup after t taking the city of Irpin, which we've all learned, uh, northwest of Kiev. Um, this week, Ukrainian forces are now engaged in heavy fighting in the neighboring towns of Buka and Hostomol. So, um, how long does that last? Not exactly sure. Um, anything though that you have your eye on relative to the conflict, given your experience? Well, my eye has always been on, and I said this to folks early on, that to me, the thing to look for was the Russian use of chemical weapons. They've used them in the past. Uh, they used them in Syria. You know, we declared uh, it was a red line, and they used them, and nothing happened. And so I would hate to be a guy in an OPT right now saying, what do we do if the Russians use chemical weapons? What's our response? Um, I don't think I've got an answer for that. So... That's the uh, thing that kind of scares me. And, and similarly, if they were to pop a tactical nuke, um, again, what's our response to that? Uh, those are, that's a huge question that uh, I don't know what advice I'd be given the president if I was in the OPT. Because it's complicated, you know, Ukraine, not in our, you know, not in our national interest not a member of NATO, right? And nobody's looking to get involved in World War III, but, you know, the world's screaming, somebody do something. And when they do that, they, you know, everybody looks at the United States. So that is not the easiest wire act in the world, you know, to execute. And uh, so, no, I agree with you. I well, I would, I, and I would differ with you a little in, in terminology. I would say, Ukraine is in our national interest. It may not be, as we define it, a vital right. national interest, something that we're, 
I think we've pretty much made clear we're not going to explain explain point, explain our national interest in you in in Ukraine. Well, I think our national interest in Ukraine is that you know we support all democratic nations around the world. Uh, we have economic uh, ties to uh, Ukraine. It serves as a it does serve as a buffer between Russia and Eastern uh, Eastern Europe and our NATO allies. So yeah, it's a national interest in uh, in those terms. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, I, I want to change gears now in, in the last 15 minutes. Um, I want to talk about Force Design 2030 and get your thoughts on it. You know uh, many of the principals involved in this discussion, uh, the retired general officers that are a part of this. Um, and let me just ask you for a general thought. Uh, this is unprecedented. Uh, the Marine Corps, all of our discussions, uh, you know, when they get very serious— uh, tend to be done uh, uh, in private and uh, unprecedented in terms of uh, a large group, you know, and again, 90% is the number being thrown around of the retired four stars supporting this effort that takes on the commandant in public. So let me just get, get uh, a thought about that. Well, my first thought is a adage that I heard when I back when I was a major, and that was a good course of action sells itself. And so, to me, the very fact that there there is this dissent and discussion, if you will, tells me that you know maybe there's some problems with this course of action that haven't been fully articulated enough to if you will, sell this course of action and, you know, uh, convince people that this is a good idea and a good direction uh, to move in. So it makes me wonder if, you know, that the basic course of action itself is in fact sound. And if it's not, that's probably one of the reasons that you've got so much dissent building. Um, so that would be my the first thing that I would uh, would say okay let me um you i want to talk to people about the people that are involved in this and you grew up um raised by many of them um or at least some of them um and you're seeing them now described in a very condescending manner as the gray beards you know who just can't embrace change and i want to get your thoughts on this um to all of you who would who would describe these these you know retired general officers as such, I would tell you, be exceedingly careful, lest you get disemboweled in public. Okay, because um, when the maneuver warfare debate was going on, I mean that thing was fought in a lot of places around the Marine Corps, and these guys were in the for for forefront of it, and and they embraced change in the Marine Corps. They were some of the greatest advocates for this, this shift away from two up and one back to this, uh, this brand of warfare that we were not so familiar with. And intellectually, they were—first of all, intellectually, they're smart as shit, okay? And then the other thing they were, and the example they set for me that has, is really what all Marine Radio is, is, you know, Marine officers and—well, Marine leaders— you know, officer enlisted, are not afraid to get it on in public. 
and not afraid to have an articulate, you know, debate over these issues relative to playing you bet your life. And that's what's expected of us if we're going to go ask somebody to die for it. And so, um, but I, I want to frame that. So that, so go ahead and make a comment on that. You know, some of these people, um, they're not intellectually, if they don't get it, then, then, then it's, I would say it's not to be gotten because they're not stupid. And they had a, evidently, I mean, from what I've heard, they, they had a meeting with the commandant in the last month and the com and they asked them hard questions and, and we find ourselves here. The commandant couldn't answer them or at least not to their satisfaction. So I'm curious uh, y- your thoughts. You know these people, they're not afraid of change, whether it's the implementation of, of, of the MUSE, whether it's the, uh, uh, the implementation of maneuver warfare. Uh, your thoughts on, on this thing in general? Well, obviously, these are gentlemen that have a ton of experience, a ton of intellect, have been students of the uh, art and science of warfare and have remained engaged. So these guys are not uh, out of touch with the technological developments that are happening. So to think that someone like a General Zinni, a General Sheehan, a General Van Riper is some kind of dinosaur and doesn't understand what emerging current and emerging technology what influence we have in the, on the battlefield is, I think, uh, pretty simplistic thinking. Uh, again, I'll go back, tell you a little story. Would, back you, in hey, 19, would you endorse my warning for anybody who's going to engage with them? Well, <laughs> absolutely. You're going to get, you're going to get Just, this shit hammered out of you. In public. General Sheehan was famous for putting people in a flat spin, you know, when a guy tried to tap dance in front of him. But just to tell you a little General Sheehan story and tell you how much foresight these gentlemen have and how much intellectual power they've got, back in, it was probably 1997, I'm sorry, it would have been more like the 95 time frame. Uh, General Sheehan was the, uh, at that time, commander-in-chief of U.S. Atlantic Command, and he came down to U.S. Central Command where I was working and also uh, the uh, commander-in-chief, I think at the time, it might have been Barry, General McCaffrey, came up from U.S. Uh, Southern Command for a Joint Requirements Oversight uh, Committee meeting. This is where all of the regional commanders got to weigh in on the various budget uh, items and make their recommendations to the Secretary of Navy on how things should be racked and stacked in the budget. And I remember General Sheehan, and again, think of this as 1995. There was an Air Force general who put on a presentation on the F-22, which had not yet come into the inventory, was still in development, and how revolutionary and great this was going to be. And I remember General Sheehan asking him, saying, okay, General, here's my question for you. Name the date. I don't care when it is, but give me the date when manned fighters will be replaced by unmanned aircraft. <laughs> so <laughs> this was, you know, 1995. So wow. we already had a guy like General Sheehan thinking of a future with, uh, you know, unmanned drones. So, you know, again, it's ludicrous to think that a General Sheehan, a General Van Riper, or a General Zinni 
isn't in touch and can't understand what the implications are for, uh, you know, the impact that these emerging technologies are going to have on, on, you know, warfare. And, and, and the other thing is, and, and you corrected me, so I'll give you a chance to do it here in public, but uh, if you talk about wargaming and Lieutenant General Paul K. Van Riper is not a part of the discussion and you're serious about it, you've made a mistake. And, and, and Mike, he was part of the wargaming for what um, around 2000? It was Millennium Challenge, which was a joint war game testing concepts and capabilities it used the Iranian scenario, and that's where he famously attacked um, U.S. carrier battle groups with uh, small, you know, boats and things, and you know, disrupted, uh, you know, some of the Navy's prized assets. So that was the uh, war game that he became famous for, uh, for being the leader of the Red Cell, and basically imply and employing asymmetrical, you know, tactics against, uh, you know, all of the U.S.'s um, platinum capabilities, you know, the the things that were sacrosanct, you know, like a U.S. carrier battle group. I use a term called um, high-functioning conformist, and uh, it's not a compliment. And I use it to, um, and I apply it to, mostly general officers and I, I i wanna kind of frame this debate and get your your thoughts about it um when i came in the marine corps there was no email there was no internet when you commanded the fifth marine regiment or the 11th marine regiment you commanded it you were lord of the manor because nobody could come down and watch you. Nobody could see anything but the statistics you produced when somebody typed them out. And so as a result, these the guys that I saw lead, they were leaders. They knew it, they knew their job and they did it. And I I think this idea of high functioning conformist is certainly uh bred by the fact that we can see everything you do now. Your your uh, every decision is scrutinized, and as a result, you don't see. I mean, could General Van Riper get promoted today? Probably not. D- too opinionated. Yeah, just too abrasive. You know, he just that guy's got too. You know, I, and so to me, I, I want to get your thoughts on this. Um, again, I mean, the the scrutiny and some of the documents I've seen that haven't been published yet. And I shared some of them with Mike. I'm telling you, stand the fuck by, man. Because there's going to be extremely hard footnoted questions that get asked. And I haven't seen them anywhere close to being answered in public. And so, um, but but Mike, there, there has been, I think, the leaders that I grew up around were these strong, independent of thought, independent leaders that were comfortable with confrontation. What I see today is not so much that. I see a lot more emphasis on being in lockstep. We can see everything you do. Don't get out of line. Um, your thoughts on that relative, because that really characterizes two camps in this debate, I think. I'm curious. Am I in line? Your thoughts on that? 
Um, you know, obviously, I've been retired since 2008. I've been an observer. So it's tough for me to comment on what, if you will, the command climate might be in the, you know, the Marine Corps right now. How different is it, the current commander of the 11th Marines, than when I was the uh, commander now going on 20 years that I took over as a commander and 18 years since I relinquished command. So it's difficult for me to comment on that because I'm simply not in touch with uh, the daily, you know, the day-to-day operations. But I think, you know, it's there has been a, a, a creep towards being concerned about how does my team perform in my piece of the, the fight, if you will, in my piece of the action. I think a lot of this we saw in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, that commanders were concerned about how well their unit did during its six months in combat and on their six-month rotation. And that, 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 there was, that was their opportunity to, if you will, shine and uh, set themselves up for greater things. And sometimes that came at the expense of what was might have been good for the uh, bigger picture. So that's one observation that uh, that I've got. Um, do, do do you think that that group think? Did do you think that expanded over the your time in the Marine Corps? Well, I certainly was kind of shocked when I saw some of that during OIF. Uh, when when I was a young lieutenant, we used to joke that, oh, we need a good war to clean out the deadwood, because of course, as a lieutenant, everyone above you right. doesn't know doesn't know anything. Right. You know, and like you say, as you've talked once again about General Van Riper, you know, at the time, yeah, you think, well, this guy's a he's a tyrant, and then you <laughs> he's realize a nut. he's a nut. And then you realize, right. well, you know what? Everything he does is thought out and is done for a a good reason. Um, but we used to joke about that and I was kind of shocked by some of the things I saw in, in OIF one, where I thought there were some folks who operated, uh, more concerned about their personal reputation and glory than again, what might be good for the, uh, force as a whole and accomplishment of the, the mission. So I saw started some of that and I, and I saw that. If you continue um, as we got into more and more deployments in, uh, you know, the cycle of OIF, and, and I never uh, deployed to Afghanistan, but I've read enough about it to, to see that a lot of that creeped into the deployments in Afghanistan. So um, I think that's something that had, has grown in the Marine Corps. As you watch this debate, final question about Force Design 2030, and then I'll let you go, and I appreciate your time this morning. Um, as you watch this this discussion that will certainly expand and take place in public, what are you most interested in, in, in seeing? I'm most interested in seeing a what I would call a complete COA because tactically, you know, we used to talk about the fact that a complete COA consists of 
you know, organizing the force into a main effort, a supporting effort, a reserve and security forces, that it defines the operation in terms of uh, shaping decisive actions and sustaining actions, and that it does things like put some basic control measures and locations and arraying of forces on a, in a visual graphic with command post locations. So I'm, I'm, I'd like to see a more complete um, course of action, if you will, because I don't think I've seen, I certainly haven't seen that. I've seen a lot of discussion about these small teams that are going to go out on islands with these long-range precision weapons, but I haven't seen anything that tells me how are these guys going to be command and controlled, how are they going to be tied together, what's the role of the uh, Marine Littoral Regiment? Is that are they just a force provider? Are they going to be forward deployed somewhere, commanding, controlling uh, over what types of communications architecture? Who's controlling the uh, ISR assets and uh, who's making the engagement decisions? And how's that all flowing? And how are these guys logistically going to be supported? And oh, by the way, if we got carrier battle groups that with all their escorts that can't operate inside the weapon engagement zone. How are these light amphibs basically unarmed, uh, no ASW, no anti-air warfare capability? Uh, how are these guys going to get around, chugging around at 14 to 21 knots and be survivable when a carrier battle group with all its assets has to stand outside the uh, range of uh, all these weapons. So, I mean, that's the thing that I'd like to see. Now, maybe that's all there and I'm just not privy to it. It's, you know, they, it's uh, classified at this point. Uh, but that's what I'd like to see because that would make me feel a heck of a lot better about understanding what this, uh, you know, concept is that is, you know, basically going to radically change the, the Marine Corps. Right. And let me let me throw out one other piece. Sure. And that was uh, something you've also discussed. And you talk about reading the footnotes of a book and how important that is. <laughs> <laughs> I recently read a book uh, called Battleship Commander. It was uh, about uh, Admiral Willis Ching Lee, who was the foremost gunnery expert in the Navy in World War II. Phenomenal commander, uh, did great things all through World War II. But the thing that I really took away from that book was uh, in the footnotes, it referred to a, st a uh, study that was done. I won't say a study. Uh, in 1942, uh, President Roosevelt was pissed off in February of 42 because he said, what the hell's going on? The Navy is not delivering for me out there in the Pacific. They haven't done anything since Pearl Harbor. You know, it's been already been 10 weeks and, you know, nothing's going on out there. So do we have the right guys out there in command? And so he tasked uh, the Secretary of War to put together essentially a kind of a promotion board, if you will, and he tasked the Navy to tell me of the 120 flag officers that are currently in the Navy, I want to know who our 40 most comp competent officers are. 
And so uh, Knox was the uh, secretary of the Navy. He put together a secret ad hoc uh, selection board. He drew in uh, serving and former, uh, at that time, commanders and chiefs of the U.S. fleets, uh, the current chief of the U.S. fleet, Admiral King, the chief of naval operations, Harold Stark, and basically two other lower-ranking guys that were one was a specialist in personnel. The other was a logistics guy. And they went through and they racked and stacked the 40 flag officers in the, the Navy and said, these are our 40 most confident you know, flag officers going forward. Um, interestingly, when you look at the, the uh, breakdown, that one of the guys that gave, uh, they gave real high uh, marks to was uh, Admiral Gormley who subsequently went out a few months later to command of the Southwest uh, Pacific uh, area and ended up getting relieved of command because he was uh, incompetent and, uh, you know, got replaced by Halsey for the Guadalcanal because he failed in the Guadalcanal campaign. But the most striking thing about that list of 40 officers that this board predicted were going to do great things was the two names that were not on the list that didn't make the cut. And those two guys were Admiral Chester Nimitz and Admiral Raymond Spruance, <laughs> who I think everyone would argue were the most successful naval commanders in uh, World War II. How funny. So how funny. now when you, you know, when I see these things about how, how we're going to do, uh, how we're going to do 360-degree um, evaluations. We're going to carefully manage all our, you know, top performers. And uh, it just makes me, I, I hearken back to that and say, you know, until the shooting starts, you really don't know who are the, going to be the guys that rise to the uh, top. There are some guys that are going to thrive in that environment and others that are going to fail. And I would also caution that, if, in fact, the Marine Corps continues along this uh, course, that the guys who are going to be able to fight and win in the type of environment that um, we're looking at, those are not the current general officers or the colonels in the, the Marine Corps, maybe even the lieutenant colonels. It's going to be the guys that are, the, as they call them, the digital natives that, uh, you know, grew up in the information age and understand how to put all of that, that stuff, stuff together. So that's Some, my final comment. God, somebody sent me a, an evaluation that George Patton wrote on Omar Bradley. It's dated September 12th, 1943 commanding officer NATOUSA, right? To the adjutant general department of the army name of officer, Reported on Omar Brad Omar F. Bradley. Period covered July 1, 1943 to 8 September 1943, two months and eight days. Duties performed, Commanding General, Second Corps. Man manner of performance, superior. Physical activity, superior. Physical endurance, superior. Knowledge of his profession, superior. For what command or duty would you especially recommend him for? An army. Patting a man a few words, right? Um, what opportunities have you had 
for observing him during during this period. Intimate daily contact. Does he render willing and generous support to plans of superiors regardless of personal views of the matter? Yes. Of all general officers of this grade, known personally to you, what number would you give him on this list and how many comprise your list? Number one, I know them all. (laughs) (laughs) Further remarks deemed necessary, none. G.S. Patton Jr. (laughs) So... You know, so you talk about evaluations. Not a bad one right there. Number one, I know them all. <laughs> well, that was the uh, that was the great thing about the World War II military. I mean, it was so small that people did uh, know everyone. And I would recommend a book, another book that I just read called Commanding the Pacific. Um, it's about Marine Corps general officers in uh, World War II. And interestingly enough, in July of 1941, you know, the Marine Corps had five major generals, nine brigadier generals, and 70 colonels on active duty. Wow. So obviously all those guys knew each other, and that was the pool that provided all of the general officer, you know, commanders for World War II. So that's, that's a— That's crazy. You know, that's a—again, it's a great read because there's a lot of interesting things about— the politics of, you know, who got chosen to go where and when and how they performed. It's a really well-written book. So I'd recommend that to your listeners out there. All right. Well, Mike, first of all, thanks very much for coming on and doing this. Appreciate your thoughts on, uh, again, the confrontation between Australia and Russia in the Pacific. Uh, Thoughts on what you've seen so far in uh, the war in Ukraine and uh, also on uh, Force Design 2030. So, uh, and uh, while you're here in CONUS, I hope you don't mind if I give you a call and bring you back and we continue the discussion. But thank you very much for doing this. Well, hey, my pleasure, Max. So thanks uh, for giving me the opportunity to to talk. And uh, I kind of feel like, you know, on the, I'm the guy up in the cheap seats now, you know, <laughs> I used to be out on the field, right. but now I'm up in the cheap seats and I'm I'm only there because it's Throwback Thursday. I got a cheap ticket, and I'm really here just because of the cheap beer and hot dogs. So, <laughs> <laughs> kind of like going to Dodger Stadium. That's right. There so, you go. All thanks. Right, thanks Thank again. You. you bet. See you. All right. Bye. That is the one and only Mike Marletto here on a uh, on a Thursday. Yeah, you know, I, it, it's it's really interesting to think about the way command has evolved and the impact on. Um, you know, call it groupthink. I'm not sure if that's the right term, but I use that her for heard that term, high functioning conformist. And uh, the guys you're going to see that that uh, are confronting the commandant are anything but that. And I think it's going to be a great example for you know a lot of Marine officers who, who who haven't been part of this Marine Corps, which is a part I grew up in, and that is. We will get it on in public. We're not afraid, and that's not really the Marine Corps of today. So it's. I, I think it's. I think it's. I think that's one of the most important things that will come out of this. Is this is how you do it? You don't do it on the down low. You don't do it small group when you're talking about these kind of changes. And as Mike said, fittingly, you know, a good COA sells itself. Anyway, my thanks to him for coming on doing this this morning. 
If you're just tuning in, um, don't touch that dial. Take me a minute to finish this thing, save it, and fire it back up. So bear with me while I do it. And uh, again, um, a good friend of mine, a a great friend of the show, Kim Holmes, passed away this week. And uh, we'll be laid to rest on Saturday. Uh, Keep him, uh, if you listen to the program at all, uh, keep him and his family and friends in your thoughts and prayers. Uh, but he was a, a great friend of mine and a self-described hetero life partner of mine. So anyway, uh, but again, celebrate his life. We should all be so lucky uh, to live life on our terms, among the people that you love, doing something that you're passionate about, and, and live a long life. So God bless him. On that note, thanks for listening today. This program repeats itself momentarily. I'm out.